All right, man. Welcome to Crow Triple Seven Radio. This is episode 478. It is me and Jason today. This is actually part two from episode 475, which was about how rock and roll launched in the U.S., basically from the West Coast. Well, that's not quite fair. How the rock that took over the world launched in the Laurel Canyon. There's rock that launched before that in other places, but this was the main onslaught. That was episode 475. For those people who follow other people, you might be aware of Sage of Quay, Mike Williams. He's been killing it for a long time because he loved the Beatles and he's a big music guy. As a matter of fact, I would probably estimate, Jason, that he's a better musician than you are. You think that's a fair statement? Oh, it's very possible. I've not heard a lot of his music. He's pretty freaking good. You're, you're both pretty freaking good. But I think he's done a lot of recording and, and he was in love with the Beatles and he had to come to the reckoning that I did. I think I came to the reckoning that I knew Paul McCartney had been swapped out in, if I remember correctly, 2013. It's been about 10 years since I came to that realization. Uh, Before that, I'd been having problems. I talked with Jason all the time because I was a very, I was a huge Zeppelin fan and Deep Purple. And I began to realize as I saw all the live Zeppelin that something was off there. So this episode, we're going to get in. Oh, I'm sorry. I was talking about Sage Aquay, Mike Williams. We're going to interview him shortly, and uh, we're going to talk about all these things. Now, in the last episode, 475, I made a pretty bold statement, but I stand behind it. All the big British invasion bands or big British bands, they're Tavistock Constructions. As I was just telling Jason, maybe while both coast, but while both America and Britain are hand in hand with the programming, it feels to me. Actually, it's a little more than a feel. The research indicates to me, or the things that I know, that they're direct offshoot of the military-industrial complex, probably some spook organization, which is actually proved in some experiential ways by the man who wrote the Charlie Manson book called Chaos a couple years ago. took 20 years to write it. But as we jump in here, let's just make a point. Your life is infinitely poorer if you don't have music. What we're going to do here is going to break hearts. The last one we did, what Mike Williams is, it's going to break hearts. People are invested in the music they grew up in. Here's what I suggest. If you start getting upset by what we're saying, then this isn't for you right now. You should you know, just go check out something else. We've got a lot of things we've covered. If you take it on board and you end up where I was at one point, where I didn't know up from down, what am I going to do now? Uh, this music that was like a main part of my life, I don't want it anymore. You get over that by the way. And then eventually you come to terms saying, I'm aware now, so that's something. And while I don't consider myself immune from the programming, I'm aware of the programming. But the main thing is your energy. And before we jump in with Jason, just let me tell you what I'm talking about. There are really two, maybe three levels of what you get robbed of when you are programmed through media in this way. Your spiritual energy and then your actual energy. Like when you have to make a living and you dedicate a lot of your earnings to albums or concerts, that's being taken from you. And people might not get where I'm going, but it's the spiritual side that gets me the most, I guess. Consider the Greek gods. We've done a lot to cover the Greek gods, and we've covered discussions where one of the gods is saying to Zeus, well, what's going to happen if the people quit worshiping us? We will go away. That is an important idea to remember. I used to consider Jimmy Page as a rock god, Richie Blackmore, John Lord, 
I, I considered these men special above, better than all other people. And it's ridiculous. And once you break that kind of worship and energy expenditure, you've taken a step in the right direction. To be perfectly clear at this point, do I not listen to this music? No, not as much as I used to. I do occasionally. And it still reminds me of being young and, and the things that I was doing. The first kiss I had to this song, just like everybody else. But it is not an important part of my life. It is simply entertainment to me now. Uh, is there anything you add to all that, Jason? Well, the music hooks you because, one, it is good. It's well-written. It's approached in a way to be interesting and emotional and to catch you. And second, a lot of the people chosen that are put on the front cover of these albums, they're there to get your attention. They're there to do a job. And I'm not saying it's every single one of them, but it sure is a whole lot of them. And that's how you get hooked and why you get emotionally invested in this stuff. Right. Um, it's just the unfortunate thing. And uh, we covered in the last album, why did all the hippies show up in 67 the summer? Why was there a summer of love? Why did they show up in the Bay Area? Why did they have flowers? Because they were programmed to do it. And the spooks were waiting for them. They knew they were coming. They waited for them. Their artists that they had control of put out the music. They did the Woodstock, which is a big part of this because people were directed to go to that. Uh, by the way, that ended up supposedly being a free concert. But my point is then the LSD, what do you want to call it? Experiments? I don't even know what to call it. It's wrong, whatever I call it. Um, it was all set up and all waiting to be there. And that's where this starts to come apart. And the programming that's put into the music, like backwards masking and you know, the idea that someone had attached demons to masters or even just listening to Zeppelin and recognizing that they put the, the Aleister Crowley Thelema quote, I think it's Zeppelin four, maybe stairway it's carved right into the album. Um, these things have an effect. And by the way, think of the energy of the album. What's it do? It sits there and spins. I'm not going to get into all that occult stuff, but let's jump in and do the best we can. And I really look forward to catching up with uh, Sage Aquay. He's about my age and we haven't talked in a long time, but let, let's do this, Jason. Quote, this is going to break your heart, but much of the music you heard in the 60s and early 70s wasn't recorded by the people you saw on the album covers. It was done by me and the musicians you see on these walls. Many of these kids didn't have the chops and were little more than garage bands. At concerts, people hear with their eyes. Teens cut groups slack in concert, but not when they bought their records. And that's from Hal Blaine, longtime drummer for The Wrecking Crew, quoted in The Wall Street Journal from March 23rd, 2011. This is huge, Jason. The Wrecking Crew, I was aware of The Wrecking Crew, I don't know, it's probably been over a decade that I've been aware of The Wrecking Crew. And this is what led me to Muscle Shoals. Actually, Mike Williams, I believe, just covered The Rolling Stones at Muscle Shoals and correctly showed you what is correct. Uh, Rolling Stones aren't recording that music. Um, you know, they use the voices basically, and who knows how well they were, uh, you know, how, how could they copy some voices? Maybe who knows, but the musicians, they were gunslingers. These musicians were the best of the best in terms of the wrecking crew. 
you can go watch a movie called Wrecking Crew. I saw it many years ago, and I just recently rewatched it again. Some of these guys are saying, well, when they wanted to hire me for session, I didn't really want to get into that kind of music because it was beneath me. In other words, they had been trained at a much higher level. They could go in with big bands or you know, much more complex music. But as it got going, they got into it. They realized they were good with it. In the Wrecking Crew movie, you'll be told that basically almost any album you loved, the musicians, you know, that uh, you thought were playing or not playing, with one exception. Uh, well, it's not an exception. The Beach Boys. People who are into music will remember that Pet Sounds was a milestone album from the Beach Boys because of how well it was recorded. I know this to be true because I used to set up stadium gigs and I knew what the sound guys would use to tune uh, it was typically Steely Dan, which is another studio band, by the way. But what the Wrecking Crew said was that Brian Wilson was a freaking genius. And he had all this music in his head. I think they say they took 10 or 20 days to cut uh, good vibrations. Um, that is the only exception that I have found where people from places like the Wrecking Crew said this guy was the real deal. He was a musical savant, basically. Now, I've talked with Jason, and I know sometimes Jason thinks I'm going a bridge too far, but I have said things like um, Muscle Shoals is no different. It was co-opted, and bands like Leonard Skinner are a complete construct. But I guess I'm not going to go there now, Jason. Depends upon who you're talking about. That's the way I look at it. I'm pretty sure the Doors played their own instruments. They certainly were able to replicate live what they did in the studio and things like that. But again, it's just uh, you got to look at these things one at a time and see really what it is that they're doing. Well, one thing, and, and you know, this is a thing I recognized as a roadie. Uh, as a roadie, I, I liked a band called the LP. They were, uh, they probably get classified as progressive, but what it actually was was classically trained musicians playing a form of rock and roll. And they even have the classical tunes put into their albums. Of all the bands that I set up for and heard, there are a few when they went into soundtrack where my draw dropped. ELP was one of those bands. Greg Lake, now dead, the guitarist and singer, came to the front of the stage with a 12-string guitar and his voice, and it, it blew me away. I mean, that it was real talent. Um, but the point I would make is what I found is almost every band I saw live was a pale shadow of their recorded selves. And I think that's almost to a band with very, very few exceptions. And then of course, I think a lot of the singers actually did the vocal tracks because everyone recognizes a voice, but let's move on from there, Jason. So we left off in part one, discussing several of the most famous rock stars and bands that seemed to manifest out of the same area in a place known as Laurel Canyon in the mid 1960s. There were several unusual things about nearly all of them that they had in common. The first is that they nearly all seemed to be the children of career military and or intelligence individuals. None of them seemed to ever mention such things during their significant time in the spotlight, which seems quite odd indeed if these were supposed to be the representative leaders of an anti-war movement. But we see no such thing at all. In fact, Jim Morrison, just as an example, frequently told interviewers, that his parents were dead. Quite a few of these new rock stars didn't really seem to be all peace, love, and happiness underneath their public veneers. Instead, unlike the counterculture they were helping to create and promote, they seemed to have rigid authoritarian personalities, some being described as control freaks and often having bad tempers 
and certainly no love for the hippies that often surrounded them. I think that they felt they were better, that they knew they had the clout. They know they'd been chosen out. They, some of them have familial ties all the way back to the so-called founding fathers. But you bring up a good point. How is it that basically the main tenant of all the music that we're talking about in the early 60s, it becomes anti-war. Vietnam's going on. People are being drafted. <clears throat> there is so much anti-war sentiment. And it's more than that. It's a new control the young have found because there are so many of them. And what they're saying is, is we don't dig the adults world anymore. We're not part of that. And this war thing, we're not going to fight your war, but how is it that the bands that created the anti-war movement music had parents that were in the war machine? Jim Morrison is the prime example, his father being the Admiral that lied to start Vietnam, actually kicked Vietnam off. Gulf of Tonkin, you can look it up. And by the way, they were caught in the lie. What was it? Was it the Pentagon Papers? Jason, I don't remember. I think it was the Pentagon Papers that outed the lie finally, if I'm correct. Yeah, it eventually came out and a lot of people just still didn't get it anyway. That is one more thing that convinced the establishment people, the uh, the controllers, if you will, that uh, they can kind of get away with just about anything. Well, they collected our tacit permission with the Pentagon Papers. Vietnam is a big thing. And though those people that were there are aging and they're being fewer, you know, like World War II, there's very few people connected to World War II left at this point. Vietnam was traumatizing. It was traumatizing to the country and it was very traumatizing to a lot of the people that were there. I've known them. As a matter of fact, I was in the military with a lot of them. And what, what came out of that was eventually they admitted this was all done on a lie. And that is revelation of method. And to be perfectly clear, what we are doing here or what people have done with Paul McCartney, that is also a revelation of method. And that is proven by the fact that Billy Shears or Billy Campbell or whatever the hell his actual name is, put out a book that he said, oh, this is fiction. So how you know it's true. But he basically tells you that all these rumors are true and more. Uh, to me, that is revelation of method. Yep, we pulled one over on you and now we're admitting it happened and nothing's going to happen. You people will do nothing about it. The second common element is that none of the draft age males that were part of this scene, and there were a whole lot of them, seemed to ever have to be concerned about being conscripted and forced to survive in the chaos of the Vietnam conflict. Because none of them that are ever mentioned were ever taken away from their respective music careers. The last thing is that none of them seem to have any significant trouble with law enforcement officials, despite the fact that almost the entirety of the 1960s music scene was tied to a massive drug scene as well. It seems that these people were operating from a highly efficient state of grace. There's no doubt people can go back and look at the draft. And by the way, for those parents now that are listening, in many states, when you sign and agree to your children's driver's license, there is a little hidden part in there that says you are agreeing that they can be drafted, just so you know, and you don't have to sign things you don't want. Um, as a matter of fact, you could modify that document. To get back to the point, how is it that all these primetime men that are surrounded by hippies that are burning their draft cards and fleeing to Canada to get out from under the draft, how is it that these guys all 
you know, dodge the bullet, so to speak. It's all insider baseball. Occasionally you'll see an arrest like Jim Morrison is a good example. To me, that's a steam release. Everyone's probably, all, all the parents are probably asking, why don't the police do anything about this drug use out of control? We know where they're going. They're going to Sunset Strip. They're going, you know, they're going to hate Ashbury. Why, why don't they just round them all up? So I think what actually happened is occasionally they do a high profile arrest as a steam release. That's my best guess. Lookout Mountain Air Force Station. We're going to look at the mainstream right up first. It is a formerly used defense site, which today is a private residence of actor Jared Leto in the Laurel Canyon neighborhood of Los Angeles, California. The United States Air Force military installation produced motion pictures and still photographs for the United States Department of Defense and the Atomic Energy Commission from 1947 to 1969. The 100,000-square-feet facility was built on two and a half acres in 1941 as a World War II Air Defense Center to coordinate Los Angeles area radar installations. When the studio was established in 1947, its purpose was kept secret. The studio consisted of one large sound stage, a film laboratory, two screening rooms, four editing rooms, an animation and still photo department, sound mixing studio, and numerous climate-controlled film vaults. Using the latest equipment, the studio could process both 35mm and 16mm color motion picture film, as well as black and white and color still photographs. It was declared Los Angeles Historic Cultural Monument Number 1098 in 2015. Number nine, number nine. Anyhow, um, this place is also apparently connected to Disney, but Jason and I were talking a few years ago, first time we, we covered some of this, and it occurred to me uh, that it's the State Department of Defense and Atomic Energy Commission, probably the fake nuclear films that we've all seen. There's a good chance they were produ produced here. And here it is, right in the heart of Laurel Canyon, where the West Coast <clears throat> rock movement in the United States is going to be kicked off. And wasn't there, I think there might have been a connection to Zappa. Is that right? I thought there was a connection to Zappa in this place. Whether or not that's right, once again, an entertainer known as Gerald Leto now owns the place, which is on some kind of a register as a historic cultural monument of which there are only, I guess, 1,100, 1,098, at least that was true in 2015. So you can see that there is no separating entertainment from the war effort, from the music effort. And you may remember more than I do about the Disney connection, Jason, but you did mention that there's an animation center in this place. Yeah, numerous people of uh, very high stature from Hollywood were mentioned being linked to going to this place, but we're going we're gonna to get there. The next several points are pulled directly from Dave McGowan's book, Weird Scenes Inside the Canyon. What would become known as Lookout Mountain Laboratory was originally envisioned as a fortified air defense center. Built in 1941 and nestled in two and a half secluded acres off what is now Wonderland Park Avenue, the installation was hidden from view and surrounded by an electric fence. By 1947, the facility featured a fully operational movie studio. In fact, it is claimed that it was the world's only completely self-contained movie studio. With 100,000 square feet of floor space, the covert studio included sound stages, screening rooms, film processing labs, editing facilities, an animation department, and 17 climate-controlled film vaults. It also had a helicopter pad and a bomb shelter. 
if it looks like a duck and it quacks like a duck, you are safe to say it's a duck. This is a duck. Look what we're talking about here. This is a self-contained, the only supposed self-contained, massive entertainment-based film producing studio. And where are we? We're in the neighborhood of Hollywood. We're in the neighborhood of the World Film Center, also known as Dreamland. But what sticks out every time we cover this, Jason, is Wonderland Park. If you remember the heinous story that was put on the porn star John Holmes, there was a movie made named Wonderland. They keep recycling these names, and I would just make mention of that. Over its lifetime, the studio produced some 19,000 classified motion pictures, more than all the Hollywood studios combined, which I guess makes Laurel Canyon the real motion picture capital of the world. Officially, the facility was run by the U.S. Air Force and did nothing more nefarious than process AEC footage of atomic and nuclear bomb tests. The studio, however, was clearly equipped to do far more than just process film. There are indications that Lookout Mountain Laboratory had an advanced research and development department that was on the cutting edge of new film technologies. Such technological advances as 3D effects were apparently first developed at the Laurel Canyon site, and Hollywood luminaries like John Ford, Jimmy Stewart, Howard Hawks, Ronald Reagan, Bing Crosby, Walt Disney, Hedda Hopper, and Marilyn Monroe were given clearance to work at the facility on undisclosed projects. There is no indication that any of them ever spoke of their work at the clandestine studio. And keep in mind that all these points on Lookout Mountain, these are all from Dave McGowan's book, so this is his research. So let's get something straight here. There should never be a time in the rest of your life when you don't recognize the fact that politics, the military, the so-called governance of this country is inseparable from show business. And I say show business because I mean all facets. As we're showing here, music was part of the controlling mechanism. Here, even Marilyn Monroe is, is mentioned, and everybody knows she had to do with the president or the president's brother or both. Do you see what I'm saying? If it looks like a duck and quacks like a duck, it is a duck. And even if you're wrong, you had every right to say it was a duck because the overwhelming evidence is telling you this. So it's not a logical leap. But when you begin to realize that all the atomic and nuclear bomb tests were put here, you begin to see the undercurrent of what's going on. The purpose of all that footage is to program minds into believing that there's a magical red button that presidents and kings have that can destroy the creation. And I'm here to tell you that they have misdescribed nuclear weapons and everything that was produced here is a social programming mechanism. People may think that that's a crazy thing to say, but I would refer you back to what is it, Jason, episode 53, I think, on nuclear weapons, where we unmask that it's nonsense. And if just to get past the point of people rolling their eyes, there has never been a time in Nagasaki or Hiroshima when drinkable water, plants, animals, and human beings did not exist, which tells you that the narrative you have been told provably beyond doubt is nonsense. But to put a fine point on it, the main point here is, does anyone not recognize that there is no separation between Hollywood and what we call our government? And for that matter, the military industrial complex, because if we want to be fair about it, it almost feels like our government and the military are two separate things now. And it almost feels like there's a third boss in town called corporation. 
And if you happen to be someone who subscribes to the notion that the footage shown to the American, well, to the world public, from NASA about Apollo, this place had the space and the equipment in the 1960s to do such a thing as faking moon footage. You know, there's a clever thing that I'll mention here, Jason. There's an old movie from the 70s. If I had to guess, I think it's about 76. So we did. We supposedly land on the moon in 69, right? By 76, they published, it's kind of a B movie, which is often how it's done because nobody takes a B movie seriously. In other words, it's entertainment, but it's a B movie. So it's, you know, what it is, Capricorn One, is how they are faking their flight to Mars. They're going to go land people on Mars. And you should watch it. These are these are the careful social programming steam releases and misdirections that are used over and over. But you also have to look at a movie like that as if you're being shown portions of how the Apollo mission went, like a, uh, a tip of the hand or a revelation of method. Um, there's nothing honest uh, about the, 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 the industry we're talking about. It is all designed to control the masses and to put an opinion and an idea in the mind of each of us and then work from there. The facility retained as many as 250 producers, directors, technicians, editors, animators, etc., both civilian and military, all with top security clearances, and all reporting to work in a secluded corner of Laurel Canyon. Accounts vary as to when the facility ceased operations. Some claim it was in 1969, while others say the facility remained in operation longer. In any event, by all accounts, the secret bunker had been up and running for more than 20 years before Laurel Canyon's rebellious teen years, and it remained operational for the most turbulent of those years. Wouldn't it be interesting to actually know the nuts and bolts of this? You know, they're going to move all these young teens in, which are going to launch rock and roll in the United States from a place where music was not created. Mostly those were in other places of the United States, from Detroit to New York, down to Nashville. Um, This was all brand new, but very quickly, all of the infrastructure springs up, all of the clubs they need to start showcasing the music. But the point I'm making is everything we're talking about here was in walking distance. This little bunker hidden film studio was within walking distance of all the leaders of the hippie movement like Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young, Joni Mitchell, and all the other ones, they were pretty much, with few exceptions, all in walking distance of each other. I've now been there, up Laurel Canyon Mountain. Yep. It's it's really big. It's way bigger than I pictured with the descriptions that we've been given of how these rock stars wandered around each other's homes and things like that. So unless they were walking around all day, I was shocked with the fact that they must have been clustered fairly close to one another if they were walking to each other's homes. Most of them were. Uh, there were a couple people where it would have probably been a drive, and they're named. I think McGowan names a few of them. There's other places I've seen it named. But you've got to bear in mind, Jason, that in the early 60s, Laurel Canyon was a lot more in the boonies or, you know, a lot more not houses every five feet than it was later. That's correct, yes. But yeah. It, it's, it is a big area, but back then, I think even McGowan says that the main core of musicians were walking you know, next door or next next door. There are a couple people, I don't remember their names, that were, I think, three miles away 
But when you look at the maps that have been provided, you can see where Lookout Mountain is and you can see where the Laurel Canyon jet set were. Well, there's another thing here, too. This is a time period where people weren't quite as lazy and wasn't a big deal if they had to go walk a little bit to go visit people. So no, it was common. Hitchhiking was, it was also common to walk wherever you're going and just throw your thumb out. Um, I lived in this period and it was, I mean, it was rare when someone didn't pick you up in the seventies. It was rare if someone didn't pick you up to, to give you a lift, even if it was an older person, it was a very common thing to say, oh, I'm going a mile. Someone almost always pulled over. As a matter of fact, when I was in ninth grade, I went to upperclassmen hours. Uh, we did this for reasons that I guess I'm not proud of. I should have just been doing what I was supposed to be doing, but I hated school. We would hitchhike to school and we were going, I don't know, if I would have walked, it would have took me probably an hour and a half to walk there. And every morning I hitchhiked to school and that was in the early eighties. Well, late seventies, early eighties. The existence of the facility remained unknown to the general public until the early 1990s, though it had long been rumored that the CIA operated a secret movie studio somewhere in or near Hollywood. Filmmaker Peter Curran was the first to learn of its existence through classified documents he obtained while researching his 1995 documentary Trinity and Beyond. And yet even today, nearly 20 years after its limited public disclosure, one would have trouble finding even a single mention of this secret military intelligence facility anywhere in the conspiracy literature. I think we can all agree, though, that there is nothing the least bit suspicious about a covert military facility operating in the epicenter of hippie culture, so let's move on. Well, before we do move on, there's a little bit more to this tale. Believe it or not, um, I, I guess I want to say Golden Age Hollywood. I've taken a stab not knowing the dates. Uh, there were Golden Age Hollywood people that were in the Laurel Canyon Hills, and there are some hellbent stories about murders and any number of things. And the reason I'm bringing this up is because how many of you out there listening have read what James Shelby Downer had to offer. So whenever we see something like this going on, we can be reasonably sure or at least comprehend that we should look at what's special about the physical geography of the place. And after we do that, we should look at the history. Have there been horrendous crimes? Have people died or been killed here? And then we should take the next step, according to Mr. Downard, and recognize that words have meaning. And this is how spells are cast. To my knowledge, nobody's actually taken the time to do that. And it used to be I had kind of a problem with some of McGowan's work. Later, I started to give him a break because he did die of cancer and it did come on quick. And it may have been he was already going a bridge too far and he was worried. I don't know. But with so many of the things he uncovered, there was such an, a door open to do the occulted, the kind of dark magic side of things. My point being is anyone could take it apart that's that's taken their lesson from James Shelby Downard. We've shown you where this is. Every road has a name. This has a geography on the map. There's a history that's adjacent to Hollywood. I'm just saying. So a point that I considered in reference to this whole hippie subculture scene being set up, this is one of the last things I dropped into the notes before sending them off to Crow. Who would have already had long hair all the way back in 1965? when this whole thing was kicking off. Certainly it wouldn't have been out of the question for many women, that was common enough. But what about young men? Mob tops would have been a thing for sure, which is slightly longer than average men's haircuts. But 
actual long hair takes quite some time to grow. And in fact, several years, because I've done it. So it's something to consider if we start looking all the way back to 65 or even 66, if there's rock stars out there with really long hair, well, at what point did they start growing it so that it would be ready to be seen for this scene? It's a good point. It takes me two years to get my hair down to my shoulders. I've done it a few times in my life. As a matter of fact, just not too long ago, about a year ago, uh, when my mom passed away, when I went to the funeral, I cut off my hair. That is a good point. Uh, I will point out that some people, like my wife, have hair that grows really quickly compared to mine. Uh, but that, I mean, if you're looking at someone with hair halfway down their back, I mean, you're looking at years, aren't you? I mean, that's got to be four years to get hair halfway down your back, I, I'm guessing. Uh, people could probably look up on average what it is. But I think what you're pointing out is the preparation. In the same way that I said, the authorities that were going to have their acid trips and start warping mines knew the hippies were coming to the Summer of Love in the Bay Area at Haight-Ashbury. They told them to go there. They programmed them to go there. So they were waiting. And I think that's why you're pointing this out. It, it was known in advance what to do. Well, 1967 is the Summer of Love. Everybody's gone to San Francisco with flowers in their hair. And a lot of these people have bitchin' long hair. And I mean men and women. So I don't know. It just struck me as odd. Maybe I'm reading too much into it. Well, to be fair, if you want to take it as, as logical, the mop tops were basically shaggy, but that was shocking because the 50s, everyone was pretty much clean cut. So it was already shocking to see the mop top. So we're talking, what, 64, 65, 66, 67. That's two years to get your hair. If you started growing your hair when the Beatles were shaggy, you had three years to have it halfway down your back by the time the summer of love arrived. Moving on to LSD, or lysergic acid diethylamide. It's a hallucinogenic drug that was first synthesized in 1938 by Swiss scientist Albert Hoffman, who was a researcher with the Swiss chemical company Sandoz. He accidentally discovered its hallucinogen effects in 1943. During the Cold War, the CIA conducted experiments with LSD, along with other drugs, for information-gathering purposes and mind control, along with other purposes. The drug would become a symbol of the 1960s counterculture and would eventually join other hallucinogenic and recreational drugs at rave parties. So how is it that we lived all those years when there was a drug war and never, you know, went at the simple ideas? Now, there was a time in, in California where there was a lot of pot being grown there up in Humboldt County and other areas. Actually, there were areas down in San Diego, way out in the middle of nowhere, um, growing it. So it wasn't a huge mystery how the upswing and how much pot you could get happened. It was coming across the border, being smuggled. But LSD, <laughs> that doesn't grow on a plant. That takes a skilled chemist, you know? Um, how is it that we didn't catch on? And so it's openly admitted, by the way, the guy who wrote the Manson book called Chaos does a fine job of pinpointing where they were doing the mind control without consent, where they were putting up the Haight-Ashbury free clinics, where Charles Manson was going, all these things it's known. But as Jason and I have covered, this was being created in universities, among other places, and so the very universities had been infiltrated, which I think we pointed out, I don't know, what was years and years ago, Jason, that the major universities had been infiltrated and co-opted by, what did we say, not far after World War II. I would think so. 
Yeah. Yeah. Something like that. But this is a serious drug. And believe me, when I talk about drugs, I know something about it. And I'm not kidding you. I know something about drugs and I'm not knowing about it because I didn't do it because I did do it. These are powerful, scary drugs. And the scariest thing about LSD is you have no clue how it was made, what the chemist decided to do, if there was some experiment going on when it was made. Um, And that's true of a lot of the modern drugs like methamphetamine or for that matter, cocaine, because you have no idea what it's been cut with. And I have seen the aftermath, but LSD, this is a serious, serious mind-bending drug. And they've had it since the 30s and they've done experiments all along. And by the time they got to the 60s, they did experiments against people's wills. They fooled them. They did, they opened, you know, little areas where prostitutes would be there to get the Johns to come in. On and on it goes. But the intent was to learn how to do things like control the mind, wipe away memories, and plant new memories, and not have the victim be any the wiser. And this is just barely scratching the surface. This whole LSD thing is tied lock, stock, and barrel to the West Coast onset of rock and roll in the 60s. And by the way, there are points where this is handed out like candy. And even in the 80s, I went to a Rolling Stones lover boy concert. There were people walking up and down the concert with blotter acid saying, hey, man, LSD, get your LSD here. Not kidding. It was, however, a fellow by the name of Augustus Owsley Stanley III, who was instrumental with the mass drugging of the youth in the 1960s. He did, of course, come from a significant military family background and also served in the military himself. He did a run in the Air Force where he worked in radio intelligence and radar. This gave him an extensive background in electronics. After leaving the service, he moved to Los Angeles, where he is said to have worked for a time at Pasadena's JPL, the Jet Propulsion Laboratory. Okay, there's another fraud, JPL. Let's ask a simple question. What portion of what mainstream tells us about our world is not fraud? Maybe that would be an easier list to tackle. JPL, and we've covered this, I can't give you the episode number, but if you really want us, you know, we did a long run on space fraud. Uh, you could email us and Rose could give you the JPL, or you could simply do a search on the site for JPL. JPL is connected to Black Magic, to L. Ron Hubbard, who was a sci-fi writer who made up a religion, which is heavily under attack by mainstream now. And it was also connected to heavy drug use, Black Magic. Have I missed anything indirectly to Crowley? Have I missed anything, Jason? Well, uh, Jack Parsons was the heart of it. He was doing early rocketry. And yeah, this guy was just absolutely obsessed with uh, dark occultic stuff. He would write letters to Aleister Crowley back and forth. Um, goodness gracious, man. Well, it's it's the duck thing again. So this guy ends up having to do with the dispersal and the mainstreaming of LSD. He's got the military black background in his family. He's got the military background of his own accord because he served. And where did he work? JPL. The apple does not fall far from the tree. And if you're in these covert situations and you recognize people who have been involved in it at some time, well, then everywhere they've worked is suspect. But JPL, that's a foregone conclusion. We've covered it. They're trying to convince you right now that there's a rover on Mars. 
Owsley then moved to Berkeley, California, where he supposedly got the recipe for acid from the university library. He <laughs> then began synthesizing both LSD and methadrine in what was called a makeshift bathroom lab near the campus of the university. On February 21st, 1965, his lab was raided by state narcotics agents and had his lab equipment seized. Owsley was charged with operating a meth lab. However, he walked away from the raid without a care. He successfully sued to have all his lab equipment returned and put it to use, producing some four to five million tabs of nearly pure LSD throughout the mid-1960s. The acid was often distributed free of charge to masses of young people, especially at major get-togethers and music festivals. Owsley was also collaborating with the Grateful Dead on putting on what were called the Acid Tests, a series of parties held by author Ken Kesey, primarily in the San Francisco Bay Area during the mid-1960s. These parties centered on the attendees, dropping acid, and often listening to live music. LSD was eventually made illegal in California on October 6, 1966. Housley was also responsible for flooding the Haight-Ashbury area of San Francisco with yet another powerful hallucinogenic drug, STP, that was developed at Dow Chemical and was tested at Edgewood Arsenal. October 6, 1966. You can't legally do LSD anymore. We've been caught. Here's kind of a sidebar that I thought about doing research in. As a matter of fact, I hope I remember to talk to Mike Williams about this. I have seen hints by particularly George Harrison that give me the impression that they were their minds were warped when they were young and that they were like walking hypnotized zombies. Uh, there are certain clips where he's talking and he's saying, I don't even know how to fake like I'm my, you know, how can I fake like I'm someone else? I don't even know how to fake like I'm myself or something like this. And the lady's all, well, when did you wake up? And he said, 1966, which is interesting because supposedly that's when the original Paul, well, actually probably provably at this point, the original Paul McCartney supposedly died in a, in a car accident. But the undertone is that they had been had their minds messed with and that they were walking zombies or something. There are a few clips that lead me to this. But to get back to the point, this guy's running a bathroom lab. Does that seem safe? Is this guy a chemist? You know, what's he making here? And I guess he must have been good at it because when they arrest him, he, nothing happens to him. Not only that, he successfully gets all his lab equipment back because he's co-opted. He's insider baseball. You can go back and look up things about the Grateful Dead, like they are provably proven to be on the FBI payroll, among others. The acid test is a hell of a thing for anyone who knows anything about LSD. The problem for us now is that people are doing DMT, ayahuasca, and all these other things are coming back into fashion, and they minimize what it means to take a chemistry blue, uh, you know, a chemistry brew, brew called acid. Um, I would submit that there is a huge difference to you from something that grows in a rainforest or any kind of a plant that is then ported over for supposed spiritual use and something that was baked up in a chemistry set. Um, there is a huge difference, but these acid tests were mainstream. While I was not old enough to be 
part of the drug culture when this was going on. I absolutely remember the acid tests, the pictures of the psychedelic buses with big signs saying, take the acid test. And by the way, this is all connected to what's his face. The, uh, the university, yeah. The university professor that informed everyone, Hey man, just quit what you're doing. Take these drugs and drop out of life. We're just going to get high on LSD now. Yeah. And, uh, that led to disaster because who's feeding these kids? Who's taking care of these kids? Where are they staying? All that kind of stuff. And it definitely became an issue uh, in uh, like 66, 67, 68. It was, it was pretty bad, especially in the Haight-Ashbury area. There was a total dark side. And if you remember the fake documentary made about Woodstock, at one point they get up on the stage to announce, hey man, don't take the brown acid or you'll have a bad trip. You know, they're just announcing this. They're claiming there was a million people the first time they did this. They're down to about 400,000, but I have a problem with so many aspects of this. But to get back to the point, when I was young, the mainstream advice about LSD was you could lose your mind in one dose. And the reason for it was what I'm saying. You don't know who made it. Was he a chemist? Was he a guy messing around in his bathtub? But the point is they used to trot out in the 70s examples, supposed examples of people who just lost their mind forever. And there were all these examples. Some people's vision had been jacked up, like they got orange spots in their eyes for the rest of their life. All these examples. And while it is mainstream and fear porn, uh, because I grew up in drug culture, I know firsthand that it is possible for very little, maybe even one use to ruin the rest of your life, change you. Now let's take a step back to the early part of the 1960s to address a little band called The Beach Boys. The Beach Boys started and made it huge before the Laurel Canyon scene began, as well as before the so-called British invasion in 1964. The Beach Boys came out with a squeaky clean, all-American public image that would be in stark contrast in a short few years to the often long-haired and bearded musicians of the new musical movement. The Beach Boys' music initially focused on the fun side of California life, such as cars and girls and surfing, with their first single, Surfin', being released on December 8, 1961. Brian Wilson, a Laurel Canyon resident, was the driving musical force behind the Beach Boys and would be very well-respected as an extremely talented musician by many of the later players of the 1960s. Now, here's a good example. Uh, Some people claim that Brian Wilson's, when you see him, you can tell he's not quite, he's off a little bit. Let's just put it that way. Some people say this was due to drug use. Some people say that he had other mental conditions that he battled with, but almost all agree that whatever is true, the drug use really, really didn't help. When I was a roadie, I think every month or two, um, I would be hired to run spots or stage set For the Beach Boys, they never stopped touring. Chicago never stopped touring. And a couple times, Brian Wilson would actually be there. And I saw him. He had a big old beard back in those days. And you could tell he was troubled. I mean, very troubled. He would stand in the back. He would never talk to anybody. And I always wondered, is this because of acid use? And people may have opinions on that, but I figured this is a good place to put it. As far as the Beach Boys, they do precede the Laurel Canyon explosion. But here's the thing. That surf idea, Southern California surf idea, girls in bikinis and surfboards, 
was preceded by a slew of movies. You might remember Frankie Avenon and Annette Funicello. And then there were other bands that were maybe not quite considered rock, like Dick Dale and all the surf safari type guitar styles. There were a few of them. So even the Beach Boys music was being leveraged off. But here's the thing, Jason, the only Beach Boy that I'm aware of that ever played on a Beach Boys album was Brian Wilson. Yeah, there was a lot to that. Uh, and the live group would eventually end up not being the same band either. There's just a lot to the Beach Boys, just like with so many of these bands being total constructs. So the Wrecking Crew is on the record in, in the film that we told you. There's a few. I think it's Hired Gun is one that I've seen. The Wrecking Crew I saw quite a while ago. And uh, the other one is Muscle Shoals. Uh, which I first saw, I don't even know, many, many years ago, I saw Muscle Shoals for the first time. But uh, they are now interviewing or have been, I don't know how many of the Wrecking Crew are left, some are gone. There was a woman who played bass and guitar, but mostly bass, who uh, her name, her last name is Kay. Carol Carol Kay, yeah. Carol Kay, she was interviewed quite a bit and told the tale of what was going on. So basically the way it works is you are the best of the best to be a studio musician. With very few exceptions, you read music on the spot. In other words, someone hands you sheet music, you're off to the to the game. You're just going right there and then. Like Jimmy Page claimed he did, right? He said, I used to go in to play elevator music, and they, they just put plunk it down in front of you and say, off you go. These guys are that good. They're doing it that way. But there are numbers of them. They rotate in and out over time. But the thing is, is all the record companies are not going to pay for some garage band level musicians to take up take after take after take to try to get it to sound good when they can just hire the best of the best to come in and knock it out and this was commonplace from roughly i want to say 55 maybe it's a little bit later up into the early 70s even uh alpert what's his name alpert in the tijuana brass the wrecking crew played on that as well and to finish out our one here although being able to crank out 10 Beach Boys albums in a three-year period, it would seem that Brian Wilson was, and always has been, a very troubled person. It seems that he suffered throughout his life from a major dissociative disorder. He has been noted as having mentioned that he would hear disembodied voices. He had been known to disappear for days at a time, turning up in other parts of Los Angeles without any money. One of his biographers was quoted as saying, While composing, Brian appeared strangely absent, as if he were functioning less as a conscious artist than as a kind of antenna. Needless to say, Brian Wilson wasn't the only rock star who seemed to suffer from serious psychological issues. So here's the thing. I mean, I think it's agreed that the members of Pink Floyd are pretty much in agreement. At least that's the impression I get, that the original member, Sid Barrett, fried his mind on drugs like LSD, if it wasn't LSD. Here's the thing about Brian Wilson. I have seen very early footage of him where he appears to be okay, just like an average individual. Nothing sticks out about it. And I truly suspect that the drug use, because it is documented that he got heavy into the drug use and the paranoia set in, uh, I expect it made it worse. But what's agreed across the board, even by the best musicians in the business, like the Wrecking Crew, that he was a musical savant. And the way that I have heard it described most time by people who were there and knew him was he heard the music in his mind, and then they worked their asses off to get him to say, that's it. 
And again, you can look it up. It's either 10 or 20 days they went to record uh, Good Vibrations. And when you hear a song like Good Vibrations, it breaks the mold. That song is like no other rock song that I'm aware of. There are a few songs that come along like this. In other words, you could make an argument that in some ways it's quite a unique piece of music when you compare it to the rest. But as we close up hour one, think about these kinds of things. How is it, you know, we were told, oh, the Beatles just like to change the way they made music all the time. They don't have two albums that even resemble the same band playing them other than the voices you're hearing. And there are plenty of other bands you could say that of. You could say that of the Rolling Stones, although the Rolling Stones do seem to have that kind of country blues, weird guitar tuning commonality through some of the albums. But what would you add, Jason, knowing what you know now, when you look back on it, do you feel the way I feel? Like, how did we fall for this for so long? Well, it was new for one thing. And second of all, they did a very sneaky thing, and that's they targeted youth who are naturally rebellious against parents. That's how they pulled this off. They targeted the youth. They got something that was new and different for them to latch onto that was different than uh, their probably very conservative parents' music may have been. And uh, then they just bombarded it everywhere. And then they put some very charismatic individuals up on the stage for them to see and uh, to imitate. So you can see the setup. When you look back to how the Vito Pelikas and his freaks were going to the clubs and doing their crazy dances while the mediocre at best bands were on the stage, you can see that this was a setup. They got the attention and very quickly got it into the mainstream culture. So there's a key point for me that you made up front where they create the hero worship and they get the best musicians in town to make the albums because that's what you're going to hear over and over and over. But when the band comes to town and they don't measure up to what you're used to, it doesn't matter. You just got to see your hero and you can see how the kind of social programming works at a level. And this sticks out to me because I've seen so many bands live. I've set up so probably thousands of stages and been there for show calls, everything from Floyd to the Stones to any of the smaller bands to country Western to just so many bands I saw. And what I noticed is it's, it's almost like I had always had programmed into my mind that, Oh, live is different, right? One of my first rock albums. Well, my first album was a beach boys album. My second album was deep purple made in Japan which is a live album. And I had it programmed in my head that uh, live albums just aren't as good as studio albums. And there's a difference there. But now when I look back on it and I realize how it was put together, I recognize how the social programming makes that doable. In a real world, if you came to see this band you knew nothing about, you might have the opinion, well, that was a bit you know, lackluster. That fell short of the mark. But when it's that guitar god that you've worshipped, for a decade, it doesn't matter what he does. You're just so happy to have been able to see them. And that's how it works. The social programming is a strong, strong influence. You know, I always want to quote Obi-Wan. The force has a strong influence on the weak-minded. The problem is, is we're not necessarily talking about the weak-minded. We're talking about everybody. What was done here was blanketed across the world. And here we are at the dead reckoning. More and more, you're going to see people doing versions of what we've been doing for about eight years now. People like Sage of Quay doing the nuts and bolts 
coverage of why it's provably correct. And it's going to change how things are. But here's my prediction. Last year, one of the biggest changes in our lifetime came and very few people recognized it. And that was the open unleashing of AI. So people could do things like make images with a few commands. If this continues with the AI, five, maybe 10 years from now, there are going to be no actors in Hollywood. They're all going to be AI. Artists are going to be out of jobs because nobody's going to pay a musician for what AI can make them in a few minutes, tops. Artists that draw, artists that paint, artists that make music. This is where we are right now. This has the potential to be at a level that is unheard of in our society. What's further is the AI will also remove every job that was ever common for people who first start working, like flipping burgers or doing any of the more menial labor jobs that typically most people start out their working life in. Those will probably be gone unless something changes. But I want to point out to you that what's going on here is almost a version of what we've been covering here. So somewhere, some someone wrote some music, attributed it to this band. They got the best musicians that were around to play it. And we loved it, thinking it was the band that we love. What AI is doing is going out and copying everything that's ever been publicly posted. And you can tell AI, make a picture, a portrait of me, and do it in Starry Starry Night style. And it'll produce it in a few seconds. And it will be better than you can imagine. This is the world we're heading into, and it's kind of a dichotomy as Jason and I take apart this era where people actually did create things, whoever they were, and actually did know music at a high level, whoever they were. This is all about to change, and maybe this isn't the best place to talk about it, Jason, but I thought I should try to get it in. Well, we're going to pick up an hour two with a little make-believe band called The Monkees. Hey, hey, with The Monkees, everyone's monking around. They were big. They were the American Beatles. We'll get into it. Um, I think a couple of them are dead now. I know J.B. Jones is. I think the guy that liked to run around naked is maybe dead too. Yes. Um, but Mickey Dolenz uh, is still been on a lot of interviews. He seemed to have been in the Jet Set crowd. And he talks a lot about things like the Wrecking Crew, how the monkeys were created from scratch. By the way, he openly and honestly, kudos to you, sir, kudos, honestly says, I was hired to make a fake band. I went in to do the recording because they needed my voice. They sent Peter Tork home with his guitar because they had the wrecking crew there. And then he said, after I recorded that day, they said, you will start drum lessons on Monday, which he did. So at least that man told the absolute honest truth about how the monkeys became the monkeys, because at the end of the day, they were a fake band that ended up touring. But that does bring episode or hour one of episode 478 to a close. We've got a lot more to get through in hour two. Uh, hour one is free to everybody at crow777radio.com, C-R-R-O-W-777radio.com. Members know to log in for the full member two-hour, two-hour-plus episode. All members get Shoot the Moon for free. It was being bootlegged a lot, but we actually just put an end to that. Nonetheless, if you're logged in on the website, it's right there for you free. And I'm about to be making a bunch of upgrades to the website. With that, I'd like to wish you all a happy, healthy, and higher-minded new era. And I hope to see you for hour two. There it is, man. Cheers.
belief is the enemy of knowing.